our program funders wants to look at client records and mentioned even making copies. I'm really uncomfortable with this. How would you handle this, especially when you need the continued program funding? Oh, I'm uncomfortable with that question. I was uncomfortable too. reading. I'm it. just cringing. <laughs> if any any of our listeners can see our faces, uh, completely inappropriate. I mean, that as absolutely inappropriate. So you can, I mean, especially if I'm going to assume here, big assumption that you have a client intake process that protects the confidentiality of client information. Yep. And, and I can at least say, or, and I hope you have that. And if not, then that's another question on another episode, right? But, but so I think you can share things in general, like, okay, we serve this many individuals and here's their demographics, but without, I mean, this person could get into you know, client names and their backgrounds. And why do they need to know those kinds of specifics? I, I think it's an opportunity for a conversation. What, what do you help me understand yeah. what, why you need this information? Absolutely. I mean, that, that was my first thought too, is like, what, you know, that seems like a really weird request, a really yeah. sort of uncomfortable and weird request, but it, you know, taking, maybe I just don't understand why they're asking, maybe finding out specifically what they're looking for. Cause I can think, I can think of even like state funders, like City governments, state governments, they they have a process that they need to go through to be able to verify that you're spending the money the way they think yes. you're supposed to be spending the money. But but that shouldn't ever get to the level of um, making photocopies of client records. That, oh. that seems wrong. And if it was supposed to be like that, I mean, if that's part of the state grant or something like that, you need to figure out what they're asking for because no, no reputable no. funder is going to be asking you for that level of detail. No, that's awful. So good luck. But yeah, and I think it's it's in addition to having sort of a coming good at luck. this from a play. Yeah, good luck <laughs> I love to you. you said good like luck. good luck. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> good luck with that one. Say <laughs> la vie. Um, no, I, I mean, I feel like there's there's an opportunity here to talk to the program funders because we have no clue what there, maybe there was a misinterpretation. Again, I like right. to try to come from a place of grace and giving people the benefit of the doubt, or maybe it's a new program officer that didn't understand their boss's directions, whatever. You have no clue. So trying to dig a little bit deeper and then sharing, well, gosh, we have this policy and we really, here's what we uphold from a client confidentiality standpoint, but here's what I can give you. I mean, then it just turns it into a much more positive conversation instead of uh, hell no. Yeah. And I mean, it, and on the other hand, like if, if they are asking for things that they shouldn't have, that's time for you as an organization to stand your guns. Like, because I mean, I, I tell this story a lot. I don't think I've told it on the podcast, but um, years ago, we actually got a donation. It was a check in the mail, and it specifically said, I would like you to make, please make sure that you use the money in this check to make sure that you're only feeding American citizens. Ugh. Right? What do we do? We sent the check back. We said, yes. thank you for your $25. I'm afraid we can't meet your requirements. And we sent it back. And that, because to be, at the end of the day, you just don't want that money. No. That's not, you can't. And, and I mean, in this case, it was really easy. It was 25 <laughs> bucks, right? So if it's a lot of money, you need to start asking yourself, like, is is this a funder that, we want to continue to do business exactly. with? Do we want to really continue whatever their, you know, weird political nonsense is? Do we want to do that? And then that's a, that becomes a board question. And you can also cover your butt by making sure that you bring that to the board. So you're, you've, if it gets to the point where the funder says, I need to see this or there won't be any more funding, that's when you make sure your board is involved. You do say, hey, this is the position that I put myself in because they're asking for this. We accepted this money. 
is it okay if I tell them to go pound sand? Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding. Hey everybody! Happy summer! <laughs> and Andy's laughing because we just talked about how obnoxious it is when I say it's not these. Not obnoxious. It's just you can only use them once. <laughs> I know we can only use them once, so I make his life really difficult. But I'm still I'm still using it because it's summertime, and I hope everyone's enjoying their summer. So, uh, welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. Our uh, twice a month podcast uh, that's made possible by Anne, the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits. Uh, We hope uh, you're subscribing. If not, you can do so now. You can share this with a friend. And of course, your reviews, five stars or otherwise, hopefully five stars will will help us as well. So ranking ranking this, rating this, uh, we appreciate. Today's episode is sponsored by Brenda J. Stout CPA, a full-service accounting firm specializing in nonprofit tax compliance and IRS problem resolution. Find out more at brendastoutcpa.com or check the Nonprofit Everything show notes for contact information. Thank you, Brenda J. Stout CPA. Thank you, Brenda. All right. This question is for you, Andy. Help. I am trying to figure out where the board's role starts and the executive director's role ends when it comes to budgeting. For example, if I need my board's approval on the budget, then do I also need their approval on the salary increases and or bonus structure I want to implement? Ah, I think it depends on the sort of the size of your organization and the nature of your board. So if you have, I mean, this is my opinion, right? So, okay. We'll just start with the correct answer, right? Which is there's no wrong answer to this. Yes. Um, it's, it, what, it's what works the best for you and what's, what, what works the best for your board. Would you agree? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it feels a little bit to me. I mean, my gut reaction when I heard this question was, God, I don't really want, if there's an executive director, I really wouldn't want the board trying to determine salary increases for my employees. That feels a little step. They can ask questions about it, but helping make that decision, who are they? They don't know the employee's day-to-day performance. Right. I, I think I cringe a little with this question because if there is an executive director, a paid executive director in an organization, that executive director hires and fires and reviews staff. And part of that review process is figuring out what type of salary increase or bonus they want to implement. And so to me, that feels, now that can be based on work and HR committee, right? Put together maybe a compensation or cost of living uh, analysis or whatever that is that can be sort of separate and help inform that executive director's work. But to me, that just feels a little bit like, that is the executive director's responsibility. Yeah, I, I, but I think it depends on the size of the organization too. Because because part of the part of the board's role and their fiduciary role, right, is to make sure that the organization is spending money in the most effective way. That they're not spending money on things they shouldn't be spending money on. I mean, you got a finance committee that's looking into those kinds of details. True. You may have a, an HR committee that's looking at details on who's getting paid what. Because the last thing the board wants is a scandal because somebody's getting paid some absurd amount of money or you know, that, or there's inequity, right? Right. Um, yeah. Right. Right. And and so so I think 
I, it's it's a tough question to answer because the answer is well it depends, it depends. right so so in a perfect world I think in a perfect world where all of the all of the staff the executive director has a staff working for them that understands how the budget is assembled and it's done really in a just sort of a well done process and it all makes sense and the board feels really comfortable with it and the whatever committee is looking at the budget before it even gets to the final board meeting to be approved that they feel comfortable with the details then yeah, I don't think the board should have an opinion at all other than that looks good. Exactly. I understand I it, trust. right? And I mean, I think it's the executive director's responsibility to share, here's how I came up with this, right? Here's the process I used. Here's what informed that process. And at that point, so so that's almost where I would love for it to stay at the board asking those questions, which I don't think is inappropriate because of the fiduciary duty. And then an executive director saying, yeah, and here's the process I used. I used such and such salary survey, right? I use this compensation analysis. I talked to an HR expert. I talked to my peers and did some 990 research. And here's what I came up with. I, To me, then, it's, it's, that should be enough, assuming the board's comfortable with that answer. Yeah. I, but I, and again, it's, it's not so, that neat, though. No, right? Because then, then you get to the point where you have to have all the detail available so that somebody can ask those questions. Yes. So if, if everybody gets a raise this year, like a one and a half percent raise this year or whatever, because you had a really good year last year and you think you can bring in the money to pay for it, um, you're going to tell your board, well, yeah, we put it, we, we budgeted for a one and a half percent raise for everybody. But then do they ask things like, well, how much have you put in for your payroll taxes? Did you, did you change it so that the Medicaid uh, like money that's going out for the payroll taxes is correct? And then, and then you're all the way down the rabbit down the hole, rabbit right? Hole. Talking about all of these tiny little microscopic details when you should probably have, you'd be looking at the bigger picture. I think it's, it's just a tough answer. And it, in, I think in really well-run nonprofits, you've got a committee yes. that would then spend the time to understand it and then have the committee be the one that's presenting the budget. So the committee says, we've looked at this. It looks great. We understand how it all works. We think it's a really good piece of work. We're bringing this to the board to approve. And then the board can ask questions of the committee and not of the staff and the executive director and everything and, and allowing them to get into the weeds. We've talked about this before, too, because a board member is way less likely to get all up in another board member's business <laughs> about, like, what are the details <laughs> of the plan that you're giving me? So if it's a staff member presenting it, like, it's like fair game, like open the floodgates. I'm going to ask you every dumb question I can think of. <laughs> yeah. But if it's the the treasurer or the finance committee chair or the budgeting committee chair, God forbid, if it's one of those, then then the questions are a lot more softball, it seems like. They are. Yeah. There's sort of this mutual respect that, yeah, not to go there. And I also, you know, this kind of brings up for me, so many of these things I think aren't black and white or cut and dry because of organizational life cycle stage of yep. an organization. And quite frankly, a lot of this once again is a partnership. And I, I continue to be, uh, there's different roles, but it's a partnership because really the board probably can't set the budget without some direction from the executive director. The executive director needs the board to approve the budget. So it really becomes communication and the partnership between this pro in this process is mm -hmm. critical. The level of trust. Too. Yes. Yeah. I have asked board members to resign due to lack of participation, not showing up for meetings, basically doing nothing, and many people think that is terrible. What do you think? I don't think it's terrible, although I would want to put some context around this, right? So I don't think you can just 
ask someone to resign when perhaps you never set expectations in the first place. So for me, this just goes back to how did you communicate when they got on the board? What were the expectations? Is there, if you're going to do that with one person, you really need to uniformly, consistently do that with everybody. And there needs to be some discussion on the board about how do we handle, right, people who aren't showing up, people who aren't participating. It's a great board discussion and then you get ownership and it doesn't make you look like the bad guy or gal um, doing that. So I, that's sort of my short answer. Um, but I think that there's also a way of um, just like you would do with an employee, there's sort of a system where perhaps it starts instead of just you're off the board. We, you know, we, we're firing <laughs> you from the board. I think there's a system where it starts with uh sort of a conversation about we've really missed having you at the board meetings and it's really important to have your participation. Has something changed in your life? Are you able to start attending again? So I think you can start it out as sort of, uh, I mean, all of this can be collegial. It's about the behavior, not the person. And just like you would do in HR, if you're like, you know, uh, holding an employee accountable for something that's not being done, I think that's those same principles apply here. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're I think you're on to something there. The, a board member is volunteering for you, so you need to treat them very nicely and they're potentially also a donor. So you need to keep that in mind, but I think you're right about setting setting boundaries and making sure that it's really clear and that you're applying the same rules to everybody. And I don't think we should um, be afraid of accountability. I think so much in the nonprofit sector we are, especially around anything to do with volunteers. And so um, I I admire someone who's willing to have those tough conversations. Uh, but yeah, let's turn this over to an expert and maybe someone who's been uh, in that in that position themselves. And, and what would they say? Hey there, everybody. Well, we are glad you are joining us for this question because it is a hot topic. And as you know, we like to bring in people we consider to be experts or uh, people who are rolling up their sleeves in the field doing some of this work because it's way better hearing uh, some of that than just hearing Andy and I blab at you all the time. So, <laughs> so with that said, um, I, it is my honor to have Tana Prince here with us today. So Tana and I have known each other for several years and uh, Tana has been a, a fearless leader and, a, and an amazing board president for the Rape Crisis Center based in Las Vegas. So, Tana, welcome. We're so excited to have you. Thank you, Stacy. Happy to be here. Great. Well, we're going to dive right in with this question and uh, would love your perspective as, as a leader of, of a board, of a nonprofit board. So, uh, the question is, I've asked board members to resign due to lack of participation not showing up for meetings, and basically doing nothing. And many people think that is terrible of me. What do you think? I believe it is the board chair's responsibility to monitor, to some degree at least, the activity of the board members. I'm sure many board chairs have had the experience uh, that there are board members that participate more than others. That's a given. As you've told me over the years, if I, as I've experienced you always have perhaps three to five that are contributing a great deal. Others have less time, uh, less involvement, um, less resources. However, if there's too much, in my experience, too much difference in participation, it can pull down the mood and the tone of the entire board. I've had this experience in the past, too, um, where very reluctantly we've had to ask a board member who could not participate to consider exiting the board. I, I think you have to do that. I think you have to take that responsibility in order to keep some 
semblance of continuity among all of the board members. If you have a person that's continually not attending, not participating, not fundraising, it impacts the other board members. The RCC has made a commitment in the last five years with your help to get our board members more equally involved in not only attendance regularly, but fundraising and participating. And when we're asking everyone to participate, and it's clear to all that one or two maybe not joining in at all, it, it really impacts the mood of the board. I think it's a fairness issue. Also, again, I think we fully expect and, and can tolerate variances in participation based on what's going on in a person's life at a different time. We've had board members need to take a leave or let us know they're going to pull back for a few months when something personal is going on. All that aside, there still has to be some equity uh, or some participation by all board members, or again, it impacts the overall tone and mood of the board, in my opinion. Well, I, I love that, and I've seen, I've, I've admired you, because as, as you and I have talked about, there's a lot of boards out there that have this exact problem that the uh, person wrote in about, and oftentimes there is a board chair or someone um, on the board in the organization who is unwilling to have that tough conversation, and it, and it really then just, you know, it can really, I think, unravel the entire entire board and, and really impact the morale as you've as you pointed out the, the kind of culture and expectation you're trying to set so so kudos to you I mean for doing that Tiana because it's it's not an easy it's not easy to do that no and I think you have to look to the long game I mean we all know practically speaking that people bring different contributions to the board and there will be board members that cannot attend many meetings, but perhaps contribute to the board in other ways. Um, all that has to be factored in. What you're really looking for, if you have to have that awful conversation, is somebody who's truly checked out in all respects, who isn't participating in any way, and and appears to be, in almost by default, resigning themselves. And it's been my experience over the 10 years I've been on the board that by the time someone isn't participating or even if they're new and they don't start out really involved, by the time you talk to them, they're barely aware that they haven't been involved enough to really be part of the board. So um, as awkward as the, con the occasional conversation is, it's not been a surprise. Can we, t can we talk a little bit about, because I'm sure people listening are wondering, how do I have this conversation? So can you maybe walk through our list, walk it through with our listeners, how you go about it? Um, and I guess layered into that, Tana, I'd, I'd ask you to think about, are there, are there baby steps that are taken before you get to the stage of saying, hey, <laughs> basically resign your seat on the board? I mean, do you, are, are there sort of little, um, I guess, friendly reminders, check-ins with people before you get to that critical conversation? And, and when you do, get to that conversation, what does it look like? Okay. Yeah, I think there's two things. One of the most important things that we did at the RCC uh, some, I want to say four or five years ago, is draw up an expectations um, um, primer, if you will. It's merely a document that says what we expect of you and what you can expect from the RCC. It's separate from the application, and it talks about attendance. 
specifically that the the goal or expectation is that you can attend most or all of the board meetings, the once a month board meetings. So I think discussing that expectation with new members is critical. And again, that takes a transition because if you haven't historically documented that or, and had that conversation with new board members, it's hard for longer term or older board members to say, well, what's, What's the issue now? Lots of people don't show or people call in. Yeah. So setting the expectation up front is important. And then the check-ins, absolutely. Again, no surprises here. Um, if I find that we've had a board member that hasn't been at the last two or three meetings or I'm not seeing their participation, I reach out to them one-on-one and just check in. Um, and that goes on for a while. Again, this is a decision to be made lightly. So... It has occurred in the past where somebody said, yeah, I know I haven't been able to attend. Here's why I'll be back on board um, in this time frame." And we work through that. So it, there's no black and white. There's no rushing anybody off. We recognize and value that this is a volunteer board and we're grateful for anyone's participation. So it's a, it's a process I would say that would occur over a year or maybe six to 12 months where again, set the expectation up front for new members, which is the most helpful thing we've found. Um, and then talk to people if you haven't seen them for a while. Um, and other board members may check in with them as well. So it's a team effort because people, the other board members that are attending every month notice yeah. they haven't seen yeah. someone there. And uh, again, it starts to be, I don't want to exaggerate. It's a cancer, but it can be, um, demoralizing to the board when someone stays on but isn't isn't present at all. Right, right. I mean, I, I know I can speak from experience and past boards I've served on. It's very frustrating, and, and candidly, it reflects poorly on the person not showing up, right? I mean, you know, you're thinking, huh, they've made this commitment. They're a board member just like I am, and yet I'm the one doing the work. I'm the one coming to the meetings, and where are they, and who's holding them accountable? And, you know, the board obviously has to really hold itself accountable and, and through the leadership of the board chair. Yes, absolutely. Um, I agree because I think that as um, as boards evolve and there's a new chair, um, new expectations get set. I'm, I've been a long-term board member um, for 10 years now and the chair of the last four. So as I watched the board evolve over the six years prior to my uh, taking over as chair, I saw patterns emerge and saw things that we wanted to maybe change and improve when I came, became chair. So it's really important to reset expectations in a subtle enough way that you're not changing all the rules just because you're the new chair. So uh, I think you have to be very aware that you have to do this slowly and you have to do it with what has been historically the pattern of the board, not just I'm the chair and now it all changes. So we've been very careful to have that process go slowly and thoughtfully and never give anyone the impression we're not appreciative of their volunteer efforts on the board. Is there any advice before we wrap up, Tana, that you would give to someone who was just going into the foray of being a new board chair? I mean, given your years of experience and you're, you're truly a role model, in my opinion, of, of it done well, um, but, but any, any tips or words of advice you'd give? 
Well, specific to this question or this issue, I would say if an incoming board chair or somebody fairly new to it should really look to either establishing expectations or restating them. Perhaps it's always been expected and even stated that meeting attendance is and participation, again, I'll mention not just attendance and meeting, but participating in fundraising or in events. If that hasn't been restated and rediscussed among the board, I would readdress the issue. I'd bring it up for input from everybody. How does everyone feel about that? Put it on the table so that over time you can now uh, address it with people without it being a surprise. So I think reminding the board, I mean, we readdress this at least annually in our retreat or in our ongoing governance discussions. Um, it, it can't be something you only bring up when there's an issue. So that would be my thought is set or reset expectations and, and talk about it and get board input so that it isn't just you, the chair, but other members of the board saying, yeah, I think it's only fair that, you know, we're all trying to be here 75% of the meetings or something of that sort. And I think that makes it less about the chair making a decision than the board agreeing as a whole, that this is how we hold ourselves accountable. I think that is sage advice. I can't thank you enough for, for taking your time um, to share your, your expertise on this topic uh, with our listeners. And, and Tana, I just think um, if, if, I, I, if every board chair could be like you, you know, you know I'm not saying this just to you. I truly have watched over the years how you have grown in your role, it, you know, how, how you have really just dealt with things head on, but in a very um, informed, intentional way. And that is um, a gift to any nonprofit. So thank you for your service. Well, thank you, Stacy. We have a longtime donor that occasionally calls and asks us to buy specific items, for example, like Hamilton tickets, for our constituents, and then she reimburses us later. She really means well, and we don't want to make her mad, but it makes us do a bunch of extra work, and sometimes things don't really make sense with our program and mission. Any ideas? Oh, that's a lot to unpack. That is. Because <laughs> there's like... Where do we start? Yeah, there's a couple of challenges in there, right? So, so one of them is that you've got a donor that's directing program activities. Yes. Right, number one. And number two... She's asking you to go down and stand in a line to get something, right? And yeah. then she's going to pay you back for them later, which adds like weird accounting headaches to it. Well, it does. And it's also, I, I mean, you have to hope that the, like, you'd really also have to hope the person reimburses you. I mean, it's an expense that you don't have budgeted that, yeah. okay, go, right? It, it, that just feels so, it just feels yucky to me on a lot of levels, Um and probably the the donor means well. I guess I'd want to know why can't the donor just go and buy the tickets and then donate it in kind to our organization for us to use how we see fit. Yeah, this feels a lot like what Clay was talking about. Clay Buck was talking yes. to us about several podcasts ago about donor dominance and about right. a donor will tell you something and the staff will just jump because that's the donor and you just do what the donor says and that that's not a really good thing to do. I mean, in this case, I think... I think it would be, I think it would be okay to sit down with, the, if you've got a good relationship with the donor, it would be okay to sit down with the donor and say, here's what our priorities are. 
right? This is the, these are the kinds of things that we're doing. And yeah, that might be a really exciting thing for them to do, um, but, but we need to probably figure out a way to plan for it so that it's not a surprise to us. Like, so I think if, if, for example, having constituents go see Hamilton is somehow fits into your mission, I don't know what it is, but if it somehow fits into your mission and you want to do that, like, like figure out a way to, to engage with the donor during your planning process to say, can we come up with like a list of the kinds of things that you're going to think about? Right. You know, but if it's like when, you know, when the Knights get to the Stanley Cup playoffs and they're like, let's, you know, we're going to send everybody to Washington to go see a game. I mean, that can come up at the end. Right. Absolutely. But, but you still have to like you, you almost want to engage with the donor beforehand to say, can we just put like a budget together so we can sort of throw it in there and then. You know, if you want to if you want to make a pledge for that amount, that at least then we have some way to keep track of it. And it's not like a fire drill every time that you have this new idea, which, you know, and say it in the most respectful way. I don't know how I would do it. I would probably be terrible at it. But. Well, well, because it's also just once you do this once with the stoner, you've set this horrible precedent. That's right. That's right. So so I'd rather see someone have that honest conversation up front and explain like you said. And here's the thing. I think a phenomenal um, fundraising professional could take this in a way and build, if it made sense with the mission, it could build an entire funding opportunity or program opportunity out of this if it was done the right way, right? You sit down and talk to the donor a bit about, yeah, their interest and wishes. And, oh, what about, let's talk to you. Let's share with you these great ideas all year long that we'd love to be able to have our clients experience. And here's what budget we would need for that. So why don't you help us make that possible? I Something like that just feels more appropriate. I, I really am uncomfortable with a donor sort of dictating. It feels like a, we've talked about donor advised funds before. It feels like sort of quasi donor advised, like, like here, let me give you something and direct you on how to use it or for what. I mean, I, I don't like, I, I don't, I mean, I think, it, I, I don't think this actually is really a <laughs> smart way to engage with. The so let's, I want to dig into that some more then, okay. because so, so. One of the things that you could be accused of as someone working in programs at a nonprofit is being arrogant about your programs, that these are the programs that we have in place. These are the things that we're going to do because we think it's what meets the mission. We, we, we think that doing this activity is going to help us meet our mission or figure out what our goal is going to be, right? And so, so when a donor comes in and has an idea and says, you know what would also help you meet your mission is if you did this other random thing that, you, that I just invented. And so the, is there a... Should you listen to that person? Should you come up with, should there be a mechanism to be able to listen to people about what they think? It's hard to, it's hard to talk about it in a really sort of um, a vague way, right? Without a specific example. Yes. But, but like it, so, so say, I mean, I know this happened, this happened at the food bank all the time. You would get somebody coming in telling you, you know what you ought to do. You know, they, they have this <laughs> great idea. You know what you ought to do. And I'd like 99% of the time, yeah, we've thought of that. And yeah. here's why we're not doing it, right? Because it's more expensive than it should be. Or you know, the, the best one is like, aren't you getting all the extra buffet food from the strip? No, you know, course. there's all this extra buffet food that's going to waste. And the reality is none of it's going to waste. Yeah. Um, so, so you're like, you always like shake your head and you're like, yeah, we should figure that out. And just thinking like, you don't know what you're talking of about. Course. Right. So, so I think there's, there's probably an aspect of that in there. Well, and I feel like, so what's interesting is all I kept thinking when you said that, Andy, was I actually feel like the arrogance, I'm sh yes, arrogance can come from staff themselves, but I think more so I see that arrogance come from donors or the person who, yeah, thinks they're going to go save the world's problems because they've come up with some, you know, novel new idea, which absolutely 
isn't novel at all and you have to placate them and make them feel special and stroke right. their ego that that's some great idea when it really isn't. Right. I mean, I guess it, it seems like there's, you want that balance of great feedback and we'll take that. We have, you know, a planning retreat every year and we gather input from people like, you know, you all year long, as well as we actually have this opportunity where we ask our clients what they need. I mean, I think that's the way around it, right? right. Yeah. If you get that feedback from your clients, you say the donor, listen, they don't really want that. That's not important to them. What they do want is this. So will you help fund that? Thanks for joining us, everybody. We, we like it when you come. If, if you thought this was interesting, if you thought you enjoyed it or you learned something new, share it. We'd love to see you share it. It's really easy to share them on Facebook now because they get posted up on Facebook every time they show up. You can go ahead and share it there and um, we will get more people listening, which means more questions, which means better questions, which means more interesting podcast episodes. Thank you to the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits, our, our presenting sponsor. They are, they're the reason that we get to do this. And uh, we will see you again in a couple of weeks. Thank you.